1 Samuel chapter 10. And we like to talk about prophecy at the bridge, don't we? It's exciting, it's intriguing, it's fascinating to, to take the words of God and, and process and think through what it means, especially for us right now, because Bible prophecy is about now. And so much of what the word speaks in terms of prophecy points to the end times, the last days, the times in which we live, and we like to look at those things and apply them. I wanna do something different this morning. I wanna talk about the prophet. Not prophecy, but the prophet. And, and what does it mean to even be a prophet? What does the Bible teach about the prophets? And we'll begin with a very strange and interesting story related to a man named Shaul. We know him as Saul. I called him Shaul all through Wednesday night. And then my, my wife, Cheryl, I got home and, and she said, now how do you say Samuel in Hebrew? And I said, well, it'd be Shmuel or Shmuel. And she said, well, why did you say Shaul, but you said Samuel? Why not say Shmuel and Shaul? And I said, because I can barely keep up with Shaul. I think I'm just gonna slide right into Saul, and we're just gonna call him Saul this morning because you know who I'm talking about, right? The first king of Israel, but prior to his becoming king, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse one, tells us, then Samuel took the flask of oil and poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? When you go from me today, then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zeltzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. Now behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you will go further from there, and you will come as far as the oak of Tabor. And there three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you one carrying three young goats, the other one carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a jug of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. Afterward, you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a harp, tambourine, flute, and a lyre before them, and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. It shall be when these signs come to you. Do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you shall do. And then it happened when he turned his back to leave, uh, Samuel, God changed his heart, and all those signs came about on that day. When they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily so that he prophesied among them. It came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets, that the people said to one another, what has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets also? A man there said, now who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? gonna ask you to think this morning. 
I don't know if you do your best thinking in the morning, in the afternoon, or not at all, but I'm gonna ask you to process through some things with me. We're gonna come back to this story in a few minutes. But as I said a moment ago, I wanna talk about the prophet, literally the anointed prophet. We see Saul in this story anointed to be king. We see the spirit of God come upon him mightily. That will happen only two times in his life where there will be a power moment, a power encounter, if you will, with the spirit of God, and Saul responds and reacts to what that encounter is. But what is it about prophets? Especially, what is it about prophets that we don't fully understand? Let's start by understanding their place. If you have read the U.S. Bill of Rights, you know that the first clause in the Bill of Rights is called the Establishment Clause. It's the first clause because it was among the most important for even the founding of this country, and the Establishment Clause reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. That is no state church. There will not be from the government uh, commands as to how the people are to worship. It's the reason why we don't have the Church of America. Well, there's the Church of England. There is not a Church of America because Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, and we see a separation beginning there. Again, the founders did not want to dictate how a person chose to worship or to fellowship. Well, then in 1802, a letter written to the Danbury Baptist Association of Connecticut by Thomas Jefferson clarified the Establishment Clause. It assured that it officially built a, quote, wall of separation between church and state. So that's where the phrase comes from, separation of church and state. Now, that has been flipped by politicians, by non-believing folk to say that the, the church should have no effect or impact on the state, when actually it was the opposite. It was that the state not be able to dictate to the church or even to the individual believer where you went to church, how you chose to believe, what your faith was like. A wall of separation between church and state. Now, that idea was not new with America. In fact, the idea of a separation between government and religion, between politics and religion, this goes way, way back. In fact, all the way, we see it in the establishment of the monarchy of Israel where the Lord develops a wall of separation, clear boundaries between offices. A priest could be a prophet. Now, with the establishment of the monarchy, we've already talked about this, the priesthood would be diminished. Not in terms of what they did, but just in terms of place in the society. The priesthood was a higher place when they were in a theocracy because the priest was the mediator between man and God. Well, now you're gonna have a king. And while the priest would still be necessary and the priesthood would still remain and function with the sacrifices and uh, at the tabernacle and ultimately at the temple, there's, there's a diminishing of the priesthood. But a priest could be a prophet. Remember I told you, Samuel himself is of the tribe of Levi. So he's of the priestly tribe. He's a priest and a prophet. That's okay. A prophet could be a king. The most prolific prophet king, you all know his name, David. David. Read the Psalms. 
Read what David spoke and said. This man was a prophet, but he was also a king. Well, that's okay. A priest could be a prophet, and a prophet could be a king. Saul also, in the story, is among the prophets. So the very first king of Israel is also a prophet among the prophets in Israel. How many of you, by the way, if I said list out the Hebrew prophets, how many of you would have said Saul? We don't often think of Saul among the prophets, and yet he was, he was. So a priest could be a prophet, and a prophet could be a king, but no king could ever be a priest. And that was the wall of separation. Violating that wall of separation between church and state is going to begin the downfall of the reign of Saul. That's where the problems really begin to emerge. Though I think we see things ahead of time in his character, that's the first thing that Saul is going to do, violate that role. He's going to go up and offer sacrifice, which are not, it's not his to offer, and that begins the beginning of the end of the rule of Saul. He legitimately wore two hats, as I said. Saul wore the hat of prophet, as we see in chapter 10, and he was the first king of Israel, but when he goes into priestly behavior, all of that begins to unravel. We'll see that happen in chapter 13. There's only one who is capable, you all know, of blamelessly bearing the weight of prophet and priest and king, and that is Jesus. He's the only one who can handle it, the only one for whom one doesn't bleed into the other, the only one who Zechariah tells us in Zechariah chapter six says peace will be between the two offices. He can handle being prophet and king and priest. He'll do it perfectly. And in fact, the Bible says, Matthew 21 verse 11, the crowds were saying, this is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth in Galilee. Hebrews chapter four, verse 14 says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And then John 18, verse 37, he's prophet, he's priest. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus says, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth and everyone who hears the truth, everyone who is of the truth, hears my voice prophet and priest and king. Now in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 12, those who, who understand something of the prophets and they also know Saul, they're very confused. Look at verse 12 again. A man there said, now who is their father? Translation, who's your daddy? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets, I mean, this even became a saying for something shocking, for something unexpected, surprising. It's all among the prophets, they would say. Do you understand the source and the biblical function of the prophetic gifting? Have you ever really thought through that? It, it rumbles around in, in various uh, areas of the church today those churches that believe very strongly in and teach a prophetic gifting, those churches that completely rejected outright that any kind of uh, spiritual gifting ended with the last of the apostles, and, and both are on an extreme, is there not a biblical answer to what the anointed prophet is today and was back then? And absolutely there is. 
So we're gonna leave 1 Samuel chapter 10 and we're gonna go all the way over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for a few minutes if you'll turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12. If you don't have a Bible, slip to the back without anybody noticing and grab a Bible off the bookshelf and I'll try not to point you out. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I want you to follow with me. We're gonna go to a few little passages here to answer five points, five points, and this is by way of introduction before we get back to 1 Samuel 10. Five points about the prophet, about prophecy as it functions in people's lives. And I'm saying that in the present tense, but I'll come back to that. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you there? Number one, jot down five things to note. Number one, prophecy is a gift. It is a gift. It is so important to understand when we talk about any spiritual gift this is not something attained, this is something given. This is some, not something naturally developed, but supernaturally offered. Prophecy is a gift. Chapter 12, verse four, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all people. Do you recognize that Paul just referred to the triune God? He said, there's the same spirit, there's the same Lord Jesus, and there is the same God, the Father. So God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, but he by his spirit through the Son and as the Father, he administrates all spiritual gifts. There are varieties of gifts and ministries and effects, but there's one God. Paul begins there so that we understand where all this comes from. Verse seven, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, why? For the common good not for the individual. The manifestations of the Spirit is for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. And to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the effecting of miracles. And to another, prophecy and to another, the distinguishing of spirits. We would call that discernment. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues, verse 11. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as they demand it. Oh, I'm sorry, I misread that. <laughs> distributing to each one individually just as he wills. This comes from the one God, the one Lord, the one Spirit, and it is given as he determines and as he wills and as he sees fit. Are we clear on that? Prophecy is a gift. And among all the spiritual gifts, prophecy is but one of them, but these listed here that we just read, these, you can say, are examples of God at work in and through a person's life. Someone has this particular gift, the Lord is working there. It doesn't make them more special. You know what makes you special, gentlemen? You're sons of God. Ladies, you know what really makes you special, where your identity hangs? You are daughters of the living God. That's what matters. 
So the gifts are given by the Lord to accomplish his work. He gives as he wills, and prophecy is just that. It's a gift. Secondly, prophecy is for bodybuilding. It's for bodybuilding. This is about the body, as we already read in verse seven, for the common good, but continuing in verse 12, even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Remember, Jesus called it the living water. He referred to the Holy Spirit as living water, rivers of living water that would, that would flow from those, Jesus says, who come to me. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Skip down to verse 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And if we stop right there, we have to recognize that like it or not, we's connected. <laughs> the toe is connected to the eyebrow. Oh, it may be a little distant. They may be uh, different in function and in look, but they're connected. And we as the body of Christ are a connected people, which means that we are all connected with every person who is worshiping, claiming, and praising Jesus right now and throughout the world today, and through the week, that we have brothers and sisters we don't even know. I mean, I'll tell you what, my, my, uh, my pinky doesn't really know my big toe. They've crossed paths on occasion, you know, when I've got the clippers out, but other than that, they don't really know each other. And yet we're all, one, this is one body, and so as the spiritual gifts are discussed and talked about, they are for the body. They're that the body would function well together, one part of the body serving the other part of the body. You are Christ's body, individually members of it. Verse 28, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Then, and by the way, the then there in, in the Greek is now a step down to an, a next level of gifting. Then miracles, then and that word then again steps it down another level. Then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. In some realms of the church, that has gotten flipped upside down and tongues is number one. Not in Paul's list. Well, it's not to deny various kinds of tongues, administrations, helps, even gifts of healing. That's not to be denied, but that's lower on the rung as far as the apostle is concerned, and he's writing by the Holy Spirit here, at the very top is the apostles who came first and then prophets and teachers. All are not apostles, are they? Verse 29. All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? And all do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The greatest gift that God has given us is his love. 
That is the gift to emulate. That's the one to pursue. That's what we're called upon as Christ's body to be one to another, and that is love, and to show the love of God in this world. So if you aspire to any spiritual gift whatsoever, aspire first and foremost to love. Because any of these gifts working outside the confines, outside the framework of the love of God are going to be abused. They will be misused, misunderstood. Prophecy is for bodybuilding. Just as the, it's a gift, the gift isn't by self-will, and it's not for self-indulgence, and it's certainly not for self-glorification. Prophecy is others-centered. In fact, all the spiritual gifts are. They are others-centered. They are for the good of the body. They are for the building up of the body, a gift for body building, go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse one. Pursue love. Paul says, after having gone through the entire love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, pursue love. Yet, desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So in Paul's economy, as he's writing this, again, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Paul said, love is first and foremost in and through all things that we do. Second to that, pursue prophecy. Ask the Lord that you may be a prophet. Is Rick also among the prophets? <laughs> For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands but in his spirit, he speaks mysteries. One who prophesies speaks to men for, check this out, get this, edification, exhortation, and consolation or comfort. Keep that in mind. Edification, exhortation, consolation. He goes on and says, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Paul even says, now I wish you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. For greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, because unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. Paul is all about the church, all about the building up of the body of Christ. In fact, if you wanna skip on over a book or so to Ephesians, a couple of books, to the book of Ephesians, chapter four, I'm kind of throwing this all at you at once. Ephesians chapter four, remembering that prophecy is a gift, that prophecy is for body building. Ephesians chapter four, verse 11. Now he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, and some as teachers. We sometimes refer to this verse as leadership gifts those who are gifted in such areas to lead in church fellowships or the church proper. And then he says, these are given, why? So that they can be in charge and have power and really think highly of themselves. No, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, 
by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. (laughs) It's a great admonition to the church today. Grow up. Grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So get that. Prophecy is a gift, and prophecy is for bodybuilding. But I said there were five things to note about prophecy. The question arises then, is there a difference between prophecy yesterday and prophecy today? That is the ancient prophets, like Saul among the prophets. Is there a difference between that then and and prophecy now? Because clearly, Paul writing in the last days, in the last 2,000 years, is talking about prophecy as a present thing. Prophecy is something legitimate for the church to build itself up in love, so is there a difference? And I believe there is. And I believe that this difference needs to be addressed because this is where we can get confused. So number three, remember prophecy is a gift, prophecy is body building, prophecy was foretelling. It was foretelling. Not for F-O-R, but for F-O-R-E, telling, one word. The prophet foretold things that were going to happen. We just saw that in the beginning part, and we'll come back to it, of 1 Samuel 10. What happened? Samuel the prophet foretold three things that were gonna happen to Saul that day, and they all happened. That's foretelling. Deuteronomy 18, verse 22. The Lord said, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. That is a very clear warning about speaking anything in the name of God that is not from God. Speaking anything in the name of God that does not come to pass, that Deuteronomy 18 chapter sets a standard that says anyone who prophesies anything that does not come to pass is a false prophet. And I'll tell you what, if we accepted that alone in the church today, there would be many people instantly cut off from continuing their so-called prophetic ministries. Because anything spoken that is not from the Lord proves that they are not prophesying or a prophet of God. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10, another picture of foretelling, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So the proof of the prophet, if he truly spoke from God, is he could speak things, he could foretell things that were going to happen, and they happened. And that's one of the ways that God began to communicate to humanity. We've said this before, how how does a God outside of time, outside of space, outside of dimension, how does he get a message through to his people and validated in such a way that we can believe it's coming from God. And one of the ways is foretelling prophecy. This is going to happen. For Saul, on that day when when Samuel said, these three things are gonna happen to you, as they began to happen, it would have heavily impressed him. Okay, then what Samuel said must be true. And so the Lord gave prophecy as a fourth 
telling. It's really, there's an interesting aside, by the way, back in 1 Samuel chapter nine, if you wanna go there, take a look with me, 1 Samuel chapter nine, verse nine, as Saul and his servant are looking for donkeys, trying to figure out where the donkeys have gone, they decide, let's go, let's go to the seer in this city. Saul didn't even know who Samuel was. Let's go to the seer in this city and maybe we can give him a few shekels and find out where the donkeys are, right? Well, then the Bible gives us this parenthetical statement, 1 Samuel chapter nine, verse nine, formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, come, let us go to the seer. For he was called a prophet now, was formerly called a seer. And we talked about this briefly on Wednesday night. You might remember this if you were here, if you heard this, that the seer had a gifting. These are two different words in the Hebrew, and the seer had the gift, the ability to foresee something. The prophet has a calling, which means the calling to foretell something. The seer could foresee, the prophet would foretell. Now, the difference between the two is that the seer just had the gift, but the prophet spoke as a messenger of God. So he, it wasn't just about seeing ahead, and the seer could, could tell people what he had seen, but he would just say, yeah, I saw this and say it. The prophet said, the Lord showed me this. The Lord says to you. The prophet is speaking on behalf of God in a gifted calling, and he has a mandate. And it's so important with the prophet, both then and now, that the prophet has a mandate to use the gift on behalf of God not for self, but for the Lord, that the prophet became a mouthpiece, as it were, to the Father, or as Les likes to say from time to time, a delivery boy. The prophet was a delivery boy in that he spoke God's word, declaring God's truth to God's people. And even in ancient times, God's prophet foretold, again, as an instrument of the Lord. So, Prophecy was foretelling, but prophecy was also forth-telling, to speak forth the word of God. The prophets did both, right? There are many times where they spoke to the people about their condition, about moral issues, about what the Father had for them. And it would be mixed, forth-telling, speaking, declaring God's concerns for his people, and it would be foretelling, speaking these things that validated the message. Are you with me? because I know it's early to be thinking. But it's foretelling and foretelling. Uh, uh, an example of the foretelling, Zechariah chapter one, verse six. Did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? The Lord says, I spoke to your fathers through my servants, the prophets. I told them where they were off base. I told them what I demanded of them, what I required of them, and they did not listen. Daniel, Chapter nine, Daniel is the, in the midst of that, of that prayer of great repentance. In Babylon, when he realizes that the 70-year captivity is over, Daniel is praying and he says, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. He says in verse 10 of Daniel nine, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us, through his servants, the prophets. That's foretelling. Yes, the prophets foretold what was coming, but they also foretold the word of God. They spoke the word of God to the people. 
They declared God's truth. What about today? Now, there is no biblical indication whatsoever. People may disagree with me on this. I would have disagreed with me about 40 years ago. I've learned a few things since then. But I would have disagreed with this when I was growing up. But there is no biblical indication that any of the spiritual gifts have ceased or are not for today. You gotta show me chapter and verse. Now that may make you uncomfortable or maybe you've come from a tradition where it hasn't been hyper-charismatic or super-Pentecostal or even moderately charismatic or Pentecostal. Maybe that is just not your background. You're like, word, just give me the word and don't give me that Holy Spirit stuff. The problem is if I'm giving you the word, then I have to tell you the truth, and that is that there is no indication in the word that all the spiritual gifts that we read in 1 Corinthians 12 are not still in play. Still available, still given by the Spirit to his people in the church today. So the spiritual gifts are in play. They are in function. However, I believe, and some may even disagree with this, I believe that prophecy has shifted in purpose. I believe that prophecy has shifted from foretelling, that is what is to come, to forthtelling, which is the declaration of the word of God. That it used to be both, but that now prophecy is for forthtelling, speaking forth the revealed word of God, still by inspiration, Still, times, still, still sometimes coming in a way that, that you don't even know. So I'm not just saying you're stuck to simply speaking what's on the written page. Paul talks about the word of wisdom. He talks about the spiritual gift of the word of knowledge. Sometimes you know something. You don't know why you know that. You know something about someone, and as you pray for them, you begin to speak with a word of knowledge, and, and they are stunned because they realize that you are speaking the word of God. It's not foretelling. It's Forthtelling. It's forthtelling for edification, encouragement, consolation. Paul's definition, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, of what the prophet does revealing the word of God. Edification, exhortation, consolation. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, however, says this God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and many ways, that is, including foretelling, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. That is through Jesus, through whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And listen to me, this is so important in understanding when people say, no, I still believe that there is a foretelling gift, that I can speak the future by the power of the Spirit of God. Listen, God is never going to contradict himself, Muhammad. He never has to correct, revise, or modify his word, Joseph Smith. He doesn't come around with some new interpretation, some new understanding, something that we don't know or something that's not already been laid down in the scriptures. God has told us what we need to know such that Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, we have the prophetic word more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Remember the word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
He says, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And with the apostle John, I believe that the door closed on prophecy in the sense of foretelling the future. But that is no longer the purpose And what I mean by that is how his plans, how the Lord's plans are unfolding and will unfold in these last days. Someone comes along and says, I have a new revelation. I'm sorry, but you don't. You may have a word of wisdom for a brother or sister in the body. You may be given a word of knowledge where you know something that the only way you could know it is that the Lord told you but a a new revelation, some addition, chapter 23, if you will, to the book of Revelation, uh uh-uh. No, because that door is closed. Revelation 21, verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And as a Bible teacher, that terrifies me. He says, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Martin Luther didn't believe the book of Revelation was inspired at all, didn't think it should be in the Bible. Uh, Bart Ehrman, maybe you've heard the name. This guy's a professor of theology and Stupidity, I don't know, this guy has just come out with a book declaring basically that the book of Revelation is at best some metaphor and an allegory. Trying to take away from the word of God or those who would try to add to it. Hey, there's no Revelation 2.0. God requires no updates. He said what he has said, and we can know, we absolutely can know what the end times look like, what is coming before us, what to expect as we come close to that time when Jesus calls us up. Because the Bible's very clear about those things. The word has been written regarding those things, and I'm starting to think, man, we really need to get back to a revelation study soon. So we will, but right now we gotta finish Samuel. So let me at least get through Samuel, and then then we'll talk. But I'm seriously thinking about pulling back out Revelation and going through the book again together, perhaps within the next year. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Again, they need no revision. So anyone comes along and says, you know what? Our Bible uh, translations, they're just not that good. And in fact, they've missed it in so many places, but God has given me new insight. New revelation. Bye-bye. Wrong-o, Mary Lou. God has not given you something new. And I said this Wednesday night, I quote John Corson on this all the time, if it's new, it isn't true. The door was shut on this idea of foretelling as from God. The Bible says in Revelation 19, verse 10, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Who is a prophet today? One who forth tells the gospel of Jesus Christ. One who speaks the word of God and who forth tells 
what God has said and who Jesus is. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And more than any other thing, that testimony, the foretelling of Jesus, is the function of prophecy today. The anointed prophet in the church today, if he is not talking, if she is not talking about Jesus Christ, you don't listen. If Jesus isn't the focus of the message, then the message is going off in some kind of tangent and you need to be really careful. One last thing before we get back to Saul. Number five, because what I told you is that prophecy is foretelling and it's forthtelling. So prophecy's a gift. Prophecy is for bodybuilding. Prophecy was foretelling. Prophecy is forthtelling, speaking forth again the word of God. And number five, final one, prophecy is managed. It's managed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29, Paul is talking to this really scattered, kind of wild, kind of out there church at Corinth exercising all the spiritual gifts all at the same time and having quite the party doing it. And he says to them in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. If a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that you may all learn and all may be exhorted. And verse 32 is a key verse when it comes to prophecy today. The spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. What does that mean? It means they don't fall under a trance unable to control themselves. In fact, it doesn't mean that prophecy is anything out of control whatsoever. Contrary to the excitement and the emotionality of some, prophecy is not being drunk in the spirit. The spirit is not gonna make you drunk. The spirit is going to make you sober. The spirit is going to clarify the Spirit is going to bring understanding and clear-headed proclamation of the Word of God. What is the, the, the ninth in the list of the fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. Self-control. The Bible, yes, yes, today still supports the gift of prophecy. In fact, Joel 2.28 it will come about after this, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. That's Bible. Well, that's Old Testament, Rick. Yeah, and then Peter applied it at Pentecost in Acts chapter two, verse 16. So he quotes Joel. He says, this is what's going on here, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. And man, have I been dreaming dreams lately. And your young men will see visions. These things should be expected in the church of the last days. Prophecy, dreams, visions. That shouldn't surprise or upset or, or, or concern us, except when someone comes along and says, I have a dream of a new revelation. Or I dreamed of seeing Jesus in this way, which is not how the scriptures present him as seen by John in Revelation chapter one. So you have this great tool for managing prophecy, for understanding the word as people give it. You just test all things by the word of God. Because while the Bible supports the gift of prophecy today, the Bible also supervises or manages this gift. All right? So prophecy as forthtelling, I believe, remains in effect. But there's something else that must precede 
every spiritual gift, including and especially the gift of prophecy. Now go back to 1 Samuel chapter 10 and we can begin our study today. <laughs> you know, I don't just say that to be funny. I, I say it because it's true. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse one. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him, that is Saul, and said, has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? Okay, how is someone a prophet? How does someone become a prophet? How does someone receive the spiritual gifts? And the key word is anointing, anointing. This was a word that was never used in my church when I was growing up. We didn't use the word anointing. That was that charismatic Pentecostal less dams kind of thing, you know? <laughs> and it is such a biblical word. The anointing. The anointing, you have to have the anointing. Now, I mentioned this midweek, but the idea of anointing was not new to Israel. In fact, you can look back over the history of Israel. Jacob anointed an altar, we see the, the high priest being anointed, Aaron being anointed for his high priestly ministry. So an altar and a high priest. And then Naomi even tells Ruth, you need to anoint yourself before you go up to Boaz. Now, in that case, it was more of a perfuming because, you know, she was gonna go see Boaz and you smell nice. But anointing as a concept was not a foreign concept. However, Saul is now the first man anointed to rule as a king. So this is, with the first king comes the first anointing of a king, and after this, that will be the process of someone being, becoming the king, coming into this position to rule. It is the anointing. So Saul is the first king to be literally smeared in the spirit. Smeared in the spirit. That's what the word means. The word anoint is mashach. Jot that down in the Hebrew, mashach. And it means to smear, to spread, or to daub. In its simplest form, it was used to perfume. So Naomi told Ruth that you need to shock some perfume before you go to see Boaz. But in its most profound use, mashach is the root word of Mashiach, Messiah. This is where, if you didn't know this, this is where Messiah as a word, as a person, as the anointed, comes from anointing. He is the anointed. Psalm 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Mashiach. Psalm 2, verse 6. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Who is the king? He is the anointed one. He is the one who has been Mashiach. He is the Mashiach, the Messiah. Now, in the New Testament, the same word carries over then in the Greek. Hebrews chapter one, verse eight says, of the son, he says, and now it's gonna quote the Hebrew scriptures, but in Greek, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. That passage in the Hebrew scriptures is Mashiach, is Mashiach. He has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Well, anoint in the Greek is skrio, or chrio. It's hard to say, chrio. That's it. 
Third one, chrio. So anoint is chrio, which literally means to anoint or to consecrate, and it is the root word of Christ. Chrio is Christ. Acts 10.38, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. So even Jesus, now wait a minute, isn't Jesus God? Yes, but remember, as much as Jesus shows us God in the flesh, Jesus also shows us God in the flesh. That is, he is also the perfect example of a man following God, even though he is the God who became man so that we could understand what it means to follow the Lord in human skin. So yes, Jesus was anointed even as he invites Becky to be anointed, to be an anointed one. Even as he says, Bill, you are to be one of my anointed ones, smeared, if you will, with the Holy Spirit. So they understood anointing in Israel, this idea of smearing this oil. By the way, the pagan nations did too. All the pagan nations around anointed their kings. Mentioned this also on Wednesday night, but they anointed their kings with lard. They did meat juice, animal goo. This is what they used. And they, because they believed they would take the fat of a bull, they would boil it down to a greasy substance, and they would use this to anoint their king. Why? So that their king would be strong as a bull. They really believed this, or the fat of an ox. They thought that the, the virtue of the strength of an ox would flow through the fat, splattered onto the forehead of their king, and that king would become strong as an ox. God didn't do it that way. With Israel's very specific, very unique, it was the pure oil of the olive tree. The anointing oil of the kings of Israel, of the priests of Israel, was, and even of the things within the tabernacle and temple, that anointing was olive oil. You can read about the mixture, the priestly mixture, in Exodus chapter 30, verses 23 through 25. But it's the oil of the olive tree. Why? Real quickly, and this, is, this, is, this could be like a whole sermon all by itself. I'm gonna give it to you in 30 seconds. Ready? The olive tree recalls redemption. It recalls redemption. Why is that? The one way to tell apart the olive trees and olive groves in Israel, even today, from all other trees is the leaves are silver. It's very clear. It's beautiful silver leaves. You can look out upon a field of olive groves uh, in Israel, and you go, oh, those are olive trees, and you know it immediately. Just look for the silver leaves. I, I think I've told you before, I grew up with an olive tree in my front yard. Every yard in Mission Viejo, California, which was a little planned community out in the middle of nowhere when I was a kid, but every house had an olive tree planted in the front yard for uniformity and because the tree go, does very well in that climate, and the leaves are silver. That speaks of redemption. Silver is the color of redemption in the Bible. You see it again and again, perhaps in the most profound way. The firstborn was redeemed by five shekels of silver. So silver is a picture of redemption. You look at the olive tree. Why would God choose the olive tree for the oil of anointing? Well, maybe perhaps one reason would be it re recalls redemption. It also suggests rootedness in the word. Olive tree is a strong tree. Its roots go deep and it holds on. It's not, <coughs> excuse 
excuse me, a remarkably tall tree, but it is a strong tree and it is deeply rooted. And I would suggest to you the idea for the king is that he be rooted in the word. That's part of the Torah law for kings, right? You write a copy of the word and you be in it every single day. Rootedness. So redemption and rootedness. The olive tree also speaks of covering. It provides broad leafy covering. And if you're in an olive grove, especially on one of those hot days in Jerusalem, you kind of like the idea of getting underneath the olive tree because it's got broad and thick leafiness to it. It implies fruitfulness. Fruitfulness that the olive tree continues to bear is a very fruitful tree. And I know this because we used to pelt each other with the fruit when we were kids. Redemption, rootedness, covering fruitfulness, just some things to jot down, it also indicates longevity. And this is so fascinating. People always ooh and ah over this one. When we go to Israel, we go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and when we are in the garden, there are olive trees there, and we point them out that were there when Jesus was there. I'm not kidding. Olive trees over 2,000 years old. The olive tree is an amazing tree in that way and that it can even look like it's died and all of a sudden, a shoot springs forth. Remember how Isaiah says, a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse. And there's a picture there of the longevity of the olive tree. By the way, that was, as I said, in Gethsemane today, the olive tree also points to not only rootedness, covering, fruitfulness, longevity, it it also talks of, when I said redemption, it also speaks of crushing, crushing. The olive must be crushed to get the oil that is so precious. Gethsemane, you know what Gethsemane means? Got shmon, got shmen. It's the olive oil press. It's the garden of the olive oil press, the garden of the pressing. What happened to Jesus in that garden? He was crushed. He was pressed. The Bible declared, Isaiah 53, verse five, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging were healed. How does that work? He was crushed. You gotta crush the olive to bring forth that pure oil. So the oil of the olive tree, it speaks of redemption and rootedness and covering and fruitfulness and longevity and crushing. But most of all, more than any of the others, the seventh thing to note about the olive tree, the pure olive oil has always signified the Holy Spirit. And many of you know this. And that's why when we anoint, I anointed Jeremy and Connie this morning. That's olive oil. It wasn't animal lard, so just to encourage you guys. Olive oil, it signifies the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 61, verse one, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Jesus would later say in the Nazareth synagogue, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He smeared, he smeared me. He smeared me with the olive oil. He anointed me with the Holy Spirit. This is so important now, understand this. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. We quoted this Wednesday night. I said I'd come back to it today. You have an anointing from the Holy One and that you know. Let me read that again. 
you have, John is talking to the church. He's not talking to an individual person. He is talking to a people. And he writes, by the anointing, by the authority of the Holy Spirit, he says, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. You know. You know. Why do some ignore or deny it? Why do some push back on this whole idea that I have the anointing of the Holy Spirit? Is it too charismatic for you? Maybe your tradition just doesn't allow for that. Is it too Pentecostal? Or are we just too busy to pay attention to the anointing? You have an anointing. I, I hope you're sitting there right now going, do I? Some of you are like, oh, I know I do. Others are like, I don't know what that means. You have an anointing and you all know. John will go on in verse 27 of 1 John chapter two to say, as for you, the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. You have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Wait a minute, so you have an anointing and his anointing teaches you. What's the anointing? It's the Holy Spirit, very clearly. In fact, Jesus said, I will send him to you and he will teach you all things, right? He will teach you. And now John says the anointing will teach you. Well, what's teaching me? The anointing of the Holy Spirit of the living God. This is true, John says. It's not a lie. I'm not making this up. And as it is taught you, you abide in him. You abide in the Spirit of God. In another place, Paul said, Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit that is in the anointing that you know you have. You know you have it. Yeah, Rick, but I don't know. And sadly, many people don't know they have it. I'm talking about Christians who have believed in Jesus. They've come under his authority. They've given him complete lordship over their lives. They've accepted him as savior. They've gone into the waters of baptism. They've done all the things required, but they're not sure that they have an anointing. I know far too many believers who choose instead to walk by the flesh than to walk by the Spirit. Trusting in self, leaning to our own understanding. Isn't that opposite of what we're told in the Scriptures? Lean not to your own understanding. Now listen, I said this on Wednesday. You're thinking, how in the world are we gonna get through this? Oh, we will. If you want to learn to walk by the Spirit, this is, this is profound, stop chasing donkeys. <laughs> you want to learn to walk by the Spirit, stop chasing donkeys. We use this phrase on Wednesday. This is a phrase in Israel, at least it's an old-time phrase in Israel. He went looking for a donkey and he found a kingdom. I love it. He went looking for a donkey, he found a kingdom. This is unexpected, this is wonderful, this is surprising, this is not what he went to get. Stop chasing donkeys. Saul went looking for a donkey. His, the donkeys of his father were lost, they had wandered off. But in the process of looking, Saul found a kingdom. I actually suggest to you that the kingdom found him. 
He was out wandering. He was out trying to protect the family business and the kingdom found him by the sovereign will of God and yet Saul almost missed it. Look back at chapter nine, verse 19. Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place for you shall eat with me today and in the morning I will let you go. I will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not you? And for all your father's household. Samuel says to Saul, look, I know you're looking for donkeys. Don't worry about it. You lost them three days ago. You've been on a three-day search. They've been found. Not a big deal. By the way, Jesus was three days in the tomb. Let me just suggest to you that before Jesus was three days in the tomb, the world could only chase donkeys. But after the resurrection, when you come to faith in Jesus, when you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, guess what? The donkeys are no longer your concern. Stop chasing them. Stop going after the things of life, the things of your provision, the things of the world. Stop chasing down those things that give you a false sense of security. Stop chasing donkeys. And come have dinner. Samuel invites Saul, look, come, come eat. Don't worry about the donkeys. Just come and eat with me. Come and dine because I have something very special to talk to you about. What if Saul refused? You ever think about that? What if Saul said, you know what? <laughs> I'm sorry, but you can tell me my donkeys are found, but I haven't found them. I don't know where they are. I need to go. Tell me where they are and, and, and I'll go get them. Saul would have missed the kingdom. You're gonna hate me for this, but don't burrow your head in the sand, <laughs> all right? Stop mewling over all the obligations, the stuff of life, the demands of the world. Stop chasing donkeys. That is of the flesh. Pursue the kingdom. Learn to trust in the Lord. This is how you do it. It's very simple. How do I learn to trust in the Lord? By trusting in the Lord. No, but I, I need a, a three-step process. Let me just give you one. Trust in the Lord. Just do that. What does that mean? You know what that means. You have a difficult decision, stop and pray about it. You're not sure what to do with the day before you? Ask him. You don't even know if you have the anointing? Perhaps that's a conversation you need to have with God who is real and who is really here and who is among us and walking with you and says, I'll give you my spirit. Man, if you who are evil know how to give good things to your sons and daughters, how much more, Luke 11, will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So if you're not sure, if you're unaware, ask him. And let's not make this big religious thing out of it. Let's just trust the Lord. Let's just do as Jesus said, Matthew 6, 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Stop chasing donkeys and seek first the kingdom. See, Jesus says, I'll take care of the donkeys. They've been found. I want you to come and dine with me. Hold that thought quickly, verse two of chapter 10. 
When you go from me today, you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. They will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. Now behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you, saying, what shall I do about my son? That's the first sign that Samuel tells Saul. You're gonna run into these two guys. They're both gonna tell you the donkeys are found. Well, that's kind of weird. How does Samuel know that? Well, let's see what happens. And then going on, the second sign, you will go on further from there. You'll come as far as the Oak of Tabor, and there are three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, the other carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a jug of wine. Okay, that's specific. <laughs> and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hands. Now, that's the second sign. Afterward, third sign, you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city, you'll meet a group of prophets coming down with the high, from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre, so they're a bluegrass band. <laughs> they're gonna come down with these instruments before them. They will be prophesying, then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. That's the third sign, and it's unmistakable. The Holy Spirit's gonna come on you, Saul, and you will begin to prophesy. It shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires or what the occasion finds and God or for God is with you. So three prophecies, three foretold prophecies to Saul that will confirm his anointing. Well, let me real quickly confirm your anointing. Let's confirm ours. Number one, we note Note that three things, real quick. The anointed sees the concern of the Father. Jot this down. The anointed sees the concern or the care of the Father. As in verse two, the men will tell him, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found, but behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys, he's concerned for you. Anointed followers of Jesus Christ, you need to see the concern of the Father. Because again, there are so many who have missed this. Do you believe, do you personally, sitting in your seat this morning, do you believe that the Father cares about you? So the Bible tells us he does, over and over and over. The Father cares for you. The Father cares for you. If you're anointed, you're gonna see the concern, the care of the Father, and you need to think about it. I mean, let it be among the first things that you pray with thanksgiving for in the morning. Father, thank you that you care about me. I often say it somewhat incredulously. It's almost hard to believe you care about me. Father, thank you. I don't deserve that. This weekend, Friday morning, I worked early this week, took Friday off, because Cheryl said, I wanna take you somewhere. I said, great. I had no idea where we were going. We got in the car. Headed out, stopped by Mocha Joe's, grabbed my favorite white chocolate mocha and one of those little breakfast sandwiches and then we headed down the freeway and I said, okay, where are we going? And she said, I'm taking you to see James Taylor tonight. <laughs> okay, whether or not you like James Taylor, big fan, big fan. I think it's like the eighth or ninth time we've seen him in concert, you know. <laughs> right, right. The whole day, all I can think about was, I don't deserve this. What, what a doll, thank you. I kept telling, tell, thank you so much. She's like, I know, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, I know, thank you. 
Do you know your father loves you so much that you're like, God, I don't deserve this. This is how I felt all day Friday and Saturday. I didn't deserve this. What? It's not my birthday. It's not our anniversary. It's just she wanted to do something nice. And I'm like, that's amazing. I didn't earn that. I haven't earned the love of God. Day in and day out, I do so many stupid, foolish, childish things that do not earn the love of God, but he gives it. See the concern of your father. Know that your father loves you. When it comes to the anointing, he doesn't anoint you because you've, you've produced enough spirituality and religion in your life that he says, okay, I can anoint this one. No, no, he anoints you because he loves you, because you're one of his kids, and he would withhold nothing from his children. And God, by the way, really did care for Saul. You need to get that because Saul is, is seen as he's, he's the people's choice. He's the one they wanted. Saul says, okay, you want to, or God says, you want a king like the nations? I'll give you Saul. But at the same time, God did love Saul. He cared deeply for this man. And it has nothing to do with what Saul could do or did for the Lord. The problem is when someone, anointed or not, when a person begins to walk in the flesh, they actually start to think that, that God cares more about our work than our worth. And that's an utter lie from the enemy. God is not more concerned about what you can do for him than he is for who you are. See the concern of the father. Jesus said in Luke 12, 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, may, the, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. So there is good work, and there is speaking forth the word of God. But it's not that he just cares about ministry. He does care about your ministry, but only as it operates from a heart that recognizes his great love. Why do you serve God? Because he loves me so much. I can't help it. I went home and emptied the dishwasher last night. <laughs> Not a usual thing for me. We serve because we recognize, we see the concern of the Father first. Next, Samuel runs into the three guys, right, hauling the groceries. They're going to sacrifice up at Bethel. They've got three loaves of bread. They've got three young goats. They have a jug of wine. This is for the sacrificial offering, and isn't that interesting? Three goats to be sacrificed. Reminds me of Yom Kippur, where it's the goat that is sacrificed and then another goat that is scapegoated and sent off bearing the sins of the people but the goats are being taken up to be offered as sacrifice. And they also are carrying bread and wine. Bread and wine, always symbolic of communion. And they're gonna give two loaves of bread over to Saul. Listen, the anointing, the anointed see the concern of the Father. The anointed savor communing with Jesus. We savor, I'm not talking about the little cup and the cracker. Although communion is a picture of a much greater thing. Luke 22, 15, he said to them, I earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer the Passover dinner. Luke 24, 41, after the resurrection, while they still could not believe it, 
because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, lunch. And then John 21, verse 12, on the beach of Kinneret, he said, come and have breakfast. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, what's the deal with the meals? I love this fact that throughout the scriptures, and, and especially with Jesus, if he can work a meal into the conversation, he's gonna do it. Why? It's not just the food as it is so much for us in America. It is the fellowship. A meal with someone in the Middle East is absolutely intimate. Jesus invites communion. Just as Samuel says to Saul, hey, hey, forget about the donkeys. Come and dine with me. Let's share a meal together, and then I'm gonna tell you some things. And it's after this meal that then he is going to anoint Saul. Come and commune. Savor communing with the son. That is time spent, any time spent with Jesus on the beach at breakfast or in the upper room for lunch or having dinner. A meal with Jesus is that picture of a God who offers and calls us to fellowship, intimate fellowship. Jesus said, Revelation 3.20, and he said this to the church, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And of course, Revelation 19, verse nine says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. These are the true words of God. There's an invitation that's gonna go out to the marriage supper of the lamb. Have you gotten yours? I hope so, because you're the bride. This is not a supper that the bride is going to miss. So see the concern of the Father. Savor communing with the Son. This is how you walk in the anointing. And finally, number three, the anointed submit, submit to the change of the Spirit. Look at verse six again real quick here. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. And it shall be when these signs come upon you, do for yourself what the Lord, what the occasion requires, for God is with you. He says, go down before me to Gilgal. Behold, I'll come down to you and, and offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. Samuel says, I'll do that. Don't you do that, Saul. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. And then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel. God changed his heart and all those signs came about on him today. Okay, I, I, gotta, I gotta explain this because you read this and you go, God changed Saul's heart and then Saul goes on to be a train wreck. How's that work? I thought God changed his heart. I thought he was gonna be changed into another man. And what about the person who gives their life to Jesus and they're supposed to be born again? That's the New Testament equivalent of change the heart. They're born again, right? Was Saul born again? Now you need to not, first of all with Saul, you need to not think New Testament because Pentecost is still a thousand years off. And to Saul, the Holy Spirit is given with his anointing. The Spirit comes mightily upon him. The Spirit will remain with him until the Spirit is removed from him in 1 Samuel 16. That's Old Testament. When the Spirit is given in the New Testament, he is not ripped away from you. You are given the Spirit to live with you, to abide, to indwell you. The Spirit is with you. If you've given your life to Jesus, you have received the gift 
of the Holy Spirit. And if you're uncertain, Peter even says, repent and be baptized every one of you and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if you're unsure, maybe you ought to get in the water just to clarify that the Spirit is given to you and remains with you. But there are still those who, they've given their life to Jesus. They have the anointing. If the anointing is the Holy Spirit, and it is, they have the anointing, but you don't see a difference. In fact, you don't see any fruit at all. We're not gonna see fruit with Saul. What's the problem? What's going on? How can you say Saul's heart is changed? Listen to me. It's changed in terms of capacity. Saul is given a heart change. He's a new man, meaning what? He now has the capacity to be filled by the Spirit of God. The capacity Today, when a person accepts Jesus as Lord, they they receive both a new heart and a new capacity and the indwelling Holy Spirit who does not depart. But you need to understand the Spirit cannot indwell you unless you have the capacity to house the Holy Spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm speaking in spiritual terms here. God gives us the ability to be spirit-filled people and then he fills us with his spirit. In the same way that God gives you faith or you would never choose to believe in him at all. He gives you the capacity to believe, faith. He gives us the capacity to be homes for, dwellings for his Holy Spirit. And so Acts chapter two, verse 38 again, repent and be baptized every one of you in Jesus Christ For the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God, you're born again, and suddenly there is a new capacity for the Spirit. Saul has that capacity. That doesn't mean the Spirit's gonna stay with Saul. He doesn't stay with Saul, he departs. But with you, you're given the capacity, and the Spirit comes and kicks off his shoes and makes his home with you, and he remains. Listen to me. Whether or not you allow the gift to be the calling, whether or not you choose to walk in the anointing is still entirely up to you. Doesn't mean the Spirit's not present, but whether or not you're going to choose to acknowledge his presence and walk in the calling that he gives you. Remember, the most important thing is the gift, not the gifts. You will receive, Peter said, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul goes on to talk about many different gifts of the Spirit. Hey, the gifts are wonderful. They're for bodybuilding. They're gifts, as we said before. But the Holy Spirit is the gift. Receive the Holy Spirit. God has given you the capacity to be literally a home for him. But do not be deceived, Galatians 6, 8. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Look at verse 10, we'll finish here. So the Spirit of God came mightily upon him with this group of prophets. It came about, verse 11, that all who previously saw that he prophesied uh, now with the prophets, that, that the people said to one another, those who knew him before. What has happened to the son of Kish is Saul also among the prophets. Is Saul also among the prophets? A man said, who's their father? Therefore, it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? Who's their father? What they're asking here, what this man is saying is, is this prophetic ability by DNA? 
If Saul's not a prophet, was his father a prophet? Because that's, that's kind of how they understood it. Well, the father had to pass the prophetic gifting along to the son. It's got to be the result of DNA. No, it doesn't. And by the way, it never is. It never is. You do not receive your gifting. You do not receive your faith in Jesus Christ because of your parents. It's not just handed over. Now, your parents may have had a great influence on you. And you can be thankful if they showed you the Lord, but if they didn't, guess what? That's irrelevant. What's relevant is you receive faith from the Lord. It's not a DNA thing. It's a gift, as I said before. And the fact that Saul now is prophesying among the prophets does not mean that he's suddenly become Mr. Spiritual. He's not. And we see evidence of this even early on with Saul. Just because someone has a prophetic gifting does not guarantee their salvation. In fact, Jesus even said, Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles and I will declare to them, I never knew you. That is going to be a stunning moment when Jesus says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That is, you who reject my commandments you who never chose to live by the very power of my spirit would have brought you. You say, Lord, Lord. And Paul, the apostle, said in 1 Corinthians 13 too, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and have all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying, anointed ones, the lifestyle must match the lip service. That the fruit sustains the foretelling. It's the gift that's given that allows me to function for him. But if I'm gonna declare myself to be a Christian, if I'm gonna say I belong to him, that should change my life, my lifestyle, my interests, my behaviors. It doesn't mean that people won't have trouble buying that God has made change in your heart, by the way. You might say, I, I, I went to church Sunday and I became a Christian. And they're like, yeah, whatever, we know you. Well, that's what they were saying to Saul. We know Saul. Who is this guy? Now he's, proph he's prophesying? Come on. And if you're in that position, don't worry about it. Don't worry about your past life. Don't worry about people judging you based on what you used to do. You let God worry about that. Don't chase those donkeys. You just see the concern of the Father who loves you. You savor communing with the Son, and you submit your life to the change of the Holy Spirit within you. Does Saul? We read out the rest of the story that when he finished prophesying, he came to the high place. He comes to his uncle. We find out in verse 16, his uncle says, tell me all about what happened. And he said, oh, we found the donkeys but he did not tell him about the matter of the kingdom which Samuel had mentioned. Saul says nothing about the fact that he was just prophesying, that he had a mighty move of the Spirit in his life, that something dramatic had changed. He says nothing. He just keeps it to himself. Why? I don't think he believes his anointing. I don't think that Saul yet even believes what's happened to him. He's been anointed. He's been prophetically confirmed. He's already prophesied with his own mouth but listen to me, Saul is a man with little or no confidence in the Lord. 
How do you know? Skip down to verse 20. Thus Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. The tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by his family. And the Matrite family, Saul's family, was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. He's named. But when they looked for him, they could not find him. He could not be found. <coughs> Verse 22. Therefore, they inquired further. Excuse me a minute. They inquired further of the Lord. Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, the Lord said, behold, he's hiding himself by the baggage. And this is Saul's problem. Saul is a man with baggage. Listen to me. Baggage quenches the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I say that very soberly because all of us have baggage in our lives. All of us have wounds, hurts, pains, things that have happened, things that we have done, and we're trying to shake that stuff, but it's heavy and it's weighty, and we continue often to carry these things. Brothers and sisters, I believe it is the single greatest reason that we ignore or deny the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It is not tradition, it is baggage. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Paul said, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything, right? Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So the question I leave with you this morning is, what is the baggage that quenches your anointing? Don't hide from it. Don't ignore it. Acknowledge, this is the stuff. This is why I can't seem to move in the gifts that God has given me. This is why I have trouble even believing that my father cares for me. It's my bags. And we keep bringing this stuff along. What are you carrying? What are you like Saul hiding behind that's keeping you from really trusting in Jesus? You don't have to drag that stuff along. Walk by the flesh, you're gonna keep carrying your baggage but walk by the Spirit and he will set you free from the weight of all that stuff. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then he says this, here are some clues, practical things you can do. Let all bitterness and wrath and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. You wanna know your anointing, you wanna walk in the Holy Spirit, man, just forgive like Jesus forgave you. Listen, I believe in Christ, we have all become anointed prophets. There is a gift of prophecy and there are those who have that particular gift, who are gifted uh, uniquely in that. But I believe all believers have prophecy as an anointed gift because, because we're all called to be foretellers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are all called to declare. We're all called to edify one another, to exhort, to console each other in the body of Christ. This is the anointed calling. So we are anointed prophets. We are also anointed priests. Don't forget that. 
You are a chosen race, 1 Peter 2.9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You are an anointed prophet. You are an anointed priest in Jesus, but there's only one anointed king, and it's none of us. In fact, as the people said, is Saul among the prophets? There's only one king among the prophets and the priests, and that is our king Jesus Christ. You all have an anointing, and you all know. If you don't know, maybe this morning you need to ask. Maybe it's time to drop the baggage that denies the anointing. Maybe it's just time to come to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, there's a lot to take in this morning. I recognize this. I, I was so tempted halfway through just to stop and come back next week, but you know me, I can't stop. Father, would you help us to now take all that we have talked about, to comprehend these things? Lord, I, I, I have a, a sense that this is so important for our fellowship right now, that we understand what prophecy really means and that we accept the anointing that you've given us in Jesus by your Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, you would help us not to be afraid of these things, but to press into Jesus, to trust you, to live for you. As we talked about, to put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, and to be kind to one another and tenderhearted and forgiving. Lord, may this mark our anointing May we be a people who are so filled with the love of God in Christ Jesus that we can only but love each other and love lost people so much that we are forth tellers of the gospel. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.